welcome back, Ag Watchers, to another episode. Uh, we've got myself, uh, Andrew Whitelaw, also known on Twitter as Wheat Watcher. We've got Matt Dalglish, also known as the Livestock Leader, uh, also known on Twitter as uh, Meat underscore Watcher. And we've got another guest on. We've got Nigel Hart. Nigel, thanks for coming along. Could you give us a bit of a, a brief who you are and, and, and what you do? Uh, thanks, Andrew and Matt, uh, for the opportunity to come and talk on your podcast today. So what do I do? I mean, I've got a 30-odd year history in uh, the grain sector in, a, in Australia. Um, also, uh, yeah, spent some time internationally um, uh, yeah, working with an international, global, yeah, multinational um, uh, grain firm. A lot of my experience came through uh, GrainCorp, um, and I led the storage and logistics business for GrainCorp uh, for a number of years. Um, more recently, I've been involved in you know, a bunch of work around uh, uh, M&A type activity, um, supply chain benchmarking, particularly in the, the grain sector more recently as part of uh, you know, what the federal and state governments are trying to achieve around improving uh, the export competitiveness you know, for Australian commodities into international markets. Originally from Juneau in southern New South Wales, God's own country. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's a, uh, come from a, a strong you know, grain and livestock farming area in the south. I'm, I'm just going to pick you up on one thing, Nigel, and I'm going to put you on the spot here is I'm looking back through my Twitter messages uh, between the two of us. And, and for the most part, for, for, for most of our initial conversations, was you insulting me about Crocs. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I've got one, two, three, four, five different comedy pictures of Crocs. And, and for most of the listeners will know that I'm a, an ardent supporter of Crocs, and I've, and I've got a pair on just now. <laughs> Yes, too. Because, because, of, because, of, because of the comfort value. And, and before we start going exactly. to the, the, the important stuff of, you know, of, of grain storage and, and logistics, I just want to highlight that if you'd invested in Crocs back in April in, in the New York Stock Exchange, you would have had a result close to 200% return on investment. So for all the haters out there, you also have been listening to me a year ago. So it's backfired, exactly. Nigel. So anyway, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get up. So after, so, so I own not, a pair of Crocs too, mate, so I'm with you. <laughs> but, but you're no, not the, Nigel, you're, not, not for those who want to actually follow you on Twitter, mate, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's Nigel25 on Twitter, yeah. So, so does that mean you were born in 1925? Or? No, 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 no. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I feel like it some days. I've got a seven-year-old. I, I, I'm feel, feeling feeling like that. No, uh, 25th of August is my birthday date. So ah, okay. not very original, mate. So <laughs> when you try to pick an email and there's a, you know, a few other night charts around the world, you just got to choose a number. So anyway, well, so, I'll, not, I'll not pick yeah. on you too much about your, your bullying of me of Crocs because you're not the only person to bully me about Crocs. There's, <laughs> there's many of them around. <laughs> Um, so, grain storage and logistics, a lot's changed in the last, let's call it 12 years. We've gone from that regulated environment, we've gone from, you know, basically AWB being exporter, and we've gone to, you know, a period where we've got quite a few new projects on the go, or, or, or actually, sorry, not on the go, projects that have been finished, and we've got new ports like in Newcastle and uh, Bunbury. What what do you think? What do you think makes a successful port in Australia? Like what's what's worked and what hasn't worked? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, it's been a very exciting period, you know, for the Australian 
you know, grain sector, you know, since deregulation, I mean, giving, you know, a whole bunch of multitude of players, both, you know, internationally and domestic, that opportunity to, uh, you know, to sort of uh, look at the Australian crop and value add, you know, that Australian crop through that supply chain. So, um, so I, you know, from what I've seen, you know, over the, you know, the last sort of 10 to 12 years, I think, you know, the Australian grower has really gained a lot, you know, from, uh, you know, being a part of that, that change in the market. Um what makes a good a good port? Um, yeah, I mean it's a good question. I mean a lot of these, you know, particularly a lot of these larger ports, because people sort of trying to. There's a lot of averaging which goes on around when we compare Australian you know, port and supply chains to Canada and Ukraine and other places. So each port in their own right is going to serve that particular drawing arc um, in a way in which you know it's going to you know try and do it in the most efficient way possible. Um, so you've got some of the, you know, the larger ports like Port Kembla, who are best in breed globally, you know, you can load vessels at 5,000 tonnes an hour, Quinana's the same, you know, et cetera. So, so those types of ports have, you know, had an opportunity to really, you know, sort of do what they do and do, do it well. Um, and then, you know, you've had the evolution of, uh, you know, p- people looking to use mobile loaders. Um, so you've got, you know, Reardon's at, uh, down in Geelong, uh, Semaphore um, in, in South Australia, Cargill have recently you know, made a significant investment in up, you know, you know, shiploader to, to load out of uh, you know, Port Adelaide. So, so you've got a from a port perspective, you've got a whole range of different solutions that you know people are bringing to the table, uh, really to sort of suit you know the assets that they've got behind that upcountry and the sort of the markets that they're trying to pursue and develop in their own right. Because I think in all of these markets, margins are very very skinny. Um, so what you've seen is a lot of work that all of these exporters have been doing about how they can sort of lengthen their involvement in the supply chain to try and earn some margin, you know, along, uh, along the supply chain. So, so it's an interesting... It's, sorry, Matt. There you go. I was just going to... Just on that infrastructure discussion there, we had... Uh, was a few podcasts back. We had Ryan Milgate on uh, from oh, Victorian yeah, yeah. Farmers, and he had mentioned about, um, I guess, a you know, similar topic in terms of infrastructure, but having the right kind of rail systems into port and, and he, was, he was lamenting the fact that the Victorian system was a bit um, haphazard and relying too much on the road network, which also had its own issues. Um, apart from what's happening on port, Nigel, how important is it to have that kind of upcountry infrastructure there, like decent rail into the port or, or, or really good roads um, to make the port as efficient as possible? Oh, they're absolutely critical. I mean, if you don't have good rail and good road, I mean, your port, you can have the best port in the world. Um, if you don't have the a good pipeline feeding it, it's going to be the worst port in the world. And that's part of the situation we've seen in Australia is you've got these, you know, large ports which have, you know, the ability to be able to load a 50, 60,000 tonne vessel in two days and yet you're feeding it, you know, at that, you know, 20% of its capacity. Um, so that's a critical, you know, piece for the Australian market is, is that rail and, and road um, uh, market. And the federal government uh, recognised that they've, in the last couple of years, have been working on this national freight supply chain strategy. Um, it's a combination of the federal and state governments getting together and looking at how can you improve that pipeline uh, you know, to market. When you look at um, Australian rail supply supply chain costs compared to Canada, um, not so much the Ukraine. I mean, our costs are running probably double, uh, if not triple, uh, the cost of being able to execute you know grain by rail um, compared to those other countries. What drives that? Um, a couple of things. I mean, Australian markets very volatile, as you know. Um, and that's from an investment perspective, it makes it really, really hard in terms of when you're committing, uh, you know, capital and assets, particularly in, in that in that rail market. Um, 
And, uh, you know, and similarly with, you know, roads, the same sort of thing. You're getting at volatility, you know, if you're investing in high-performance vehicles, et cetera, you want to have them running 12 months of the year. So we've got all these big peaks and troughs. So where does the freight capacity, you know, sit at, both in terms of, you know, rail and road? It's typically sort of at that, you know, that average crop level or the, you know, probably the 75th percentile of that average crop level. So in big years like this year, we have problems with, you know, the amount of rail and road capability you know, that's out there, um, you know, to execute that task. Um, so that's the critical element um, in terms of port performance is really, you know, road and rail freight. Because, I, like, I, I spent the early part of my career working in logistics in the UK. And most of our, the business I worked at the time was mainly involved in imports or things like soy meals. So it was geared up for imports, but we weren't geared up for exports. And then we sort of, I remember at one point we were doing the odd, you know, a bit of wheat onto coasters to, to ship to Ireland or, or into yep. Europe. And I always find it fascinating, you know, 5,000 tons an hour at Port Campbell or, or Konana. Our, our operation was the truck went up to the quayside, tipped off on the quay, and then the grab would pick it up off the quay. And, and yep. I think we were doing 2,000 tons a day. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that was that was a pretty cheap, cheap operation and, and pretty, pretty low cost, whereas like it wasn't important for us. Like it was just a, every now and then. In terms of one of the things I find quite interesting is I'm looking at the map just now on, on my wall. We've had, you, you mentioned Reardon's at, at Geelong, uh, the, the, the Adelaide stuff. Uh, then there's obviously a few bits on the Air Peninsula, Newcastle, uh, that has been investments in. However, when I look at it, you look at WA, that is the largest exportable surplus year on year but really there's only been Bunbury and there was an attempt down in Albany which I'm not sure has actually exported anything yet it's going into liquidation it's not likely to export anything anytime soon I wasn't, wasn't sure if that was because they, they, they bought a lot of land as well the, the yeah, they did. Yeah, that farming as well as um, and, and their intention was to farm and then you know execute through their own supply chain through the um the old wood pellet um, facility mm. that was built there, um, right. and to and it's linked into the you know, the wood chip shiploader. Um, so that that was the sort of the, the proposal. But I guess my my thoughts are you've got such an exportable surplus there, but you just have not had all that much investment apart from Bunbury, really. Why, why is that? You got any insights into like because that would be the obvious one. You got access to huge amounts of grain. Yeah, it's it's yeah, but the, the, the reality is the international exporters have also got access to that grain, and CBH run a, a cracking good supply chain. Um, you know, I mean, their their cost of execution is you know ten to fifteen, maybe twenty dollars a ton. Um, you know, lower than the east coast of Australia. So, you know, they've got. You know, massive infrastructure, you know, they control the whole supply chain through their, you know, they've bought rail I and mean, they've done all the things that you would do, you know, to, you know, get that supply chain efficiency there for their growers. Um, they've done it incredibly well. I mean, when you benchmark them you know, globally against, you know, the sort of Canadian market, you know, you know not so much the US um, uh, and Ukraine, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're a first-class operator. I mean, they're a co-op. I mean, you know, the amount of capex they put into that, Business every year is just just phenomenal. I mean, so you know, no, no, no taxes helps as well. <laughs> no tax. Yeah, everyone loves that. Mm. You mentioned um, you mentioned Nigel a few times now. The, the global benchmark, and also you alluded to 
the kind of infrastructure cost or, or running cost of of port here in Australia compared to say our competitors. Um, and I think you said we we're what three times higher than Canada or something like that. Was what yeah. you said for for, and, for rail costs, they're about three to oh, four okay. cents per ton NTK, and Australia averages somewhere between six and six and eleven. It just depends on what line you're on. I mean, that's the kaleidoscope of Australia is very hard to benchmark against anywhere else in the world because we have so many different systems, um, both in terms of rail and road, um, around, you know, capability. Um, you know, you've got, you know, when you're comparing like Canada, which is, you know, sort of first class, you know, sort of railways versus, you know, class five lines, <laughs> branch lines in, in uh, you know, on the East Coast as well as, you know, Western Australia, I and mean, you're not sort of necessarily comparing apples with apples. Yeah. It, rem it reminded me a bit of the meat processors that were in the same situation that from a meat processing cost, I guess, you know, in terms of labour costs and other running costs, we're the most expensive um, by a long stretch compared to mm. our competitors. Would it be fair to say then the Australian system in that infrastructure rail costs and that are, is, will be up there with the most expensive in the world for that? Or, or are they, you know, kind of players that we compete with that are worse than us? Uh, yeah. The, the, it, again, it's that kaleidoscope. There's there's parts which are, are, are best in class and they've got opportunities to run on. Um, say you're running on the coal network, you know, um, you're likely doing other Newcastle zone, although, you know, their issue is more so production and domestic consumption, you know, versus exports. But, you know, again, when it comes to sort of rail logistics and efficiency, you're running on, you know, that coal network's one of the most efficient in the world. So... If you're on the back of that, happy days. I mean, your execution, rail execution costs are, are, uh, are uh, you know, going to be quite efficient in terms of larger, you know, uh, consists in terms of the number of wagons as well as how much you can fit in a wagon. Uh, same in central Queensland when you're running on that, um, running on a coal network. Um, but say, for example, when you get down into Victoria and, and South Australia to an extent, I mean, they're typically only grain-only lines. Axle weights are, you know, probably 19 tonnes, 21 tonnes max versus 25 tonnes. Um, so, you know, that's when you sort of start to get, you know, a more expensive, you know, pathway to execution, um, uh, particularly on rail. When, when, when I go back to the, to back to Western Australia for a second, like I, I, I remember we had a lot of guys from the UK coming out. I, I stayed in Western Australia for five years or so. And I remember taking them to, uh, I think it was York to, to the CBH site out there oh. and, and they were sort of you know, amazed they thought this was the, the best thing they'd ever seen. Like in comparison to a UK or European grain site, it was, mm. the, the infrastructure was amazing. And then we took them to Kunana, which just blew them, blew their minds completely. And, 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 and <laughs> it's very impressive. Um, but I guess, I guess that's the thing, like going back to the Western Australia, CBH is the dominant player. And, and I guess, yeah. you know, I guess the competition laws have meant that they have to, have to allow all, all the different grains players into that marketplace. And, and I guess from, from a storage and handling point of view, you know, it's too hard to compete, isn't it? You're not going to, you're not going to make, you know, you can't compete with a co-op really in, in that space. Yeah. Look, I mean, they've got the advantage of having a 50 year legacy. I mean, they've built up, you know, that, um, that network, you know, as a, as a co-op with a 50 year legacy. And as you say, I mean, you know, co-op's got certain objectives that they need to meet on behalf of growers. So, Young growers like to see you know, competition um, in the market as well. So around, uh, you know, traders competing with each, with each other, which with each other to get the best value for the grain. I mean, obviously they've got a marketing arm in their own right. Um, uh, yeah, which again they they do to, you know, try and create more value, you know, through their supply chain for growers through that marketing arm. And you know, obviously they've got 
um, uh, value-adding investments in, in Southeast Asia as well, which, are, which they're supplying. So they're trying to, again, add value for growers along each of those different points. But, but at the same time, I mean, they've got that, that huge legacy <laughs> infrastructure and, you know, it's, they're doing it at a, at a low cost. Um, you know, you look at your fobbing costs out of WA, you know, direct vessel delivery is about 24 bucks. You know, going through the supply chain is about 34 East Coast, you know, even South Australia is about 47 to 52. East Coast is, you know, uh, you know 42 to 46. So, um, you know, the, when you look at, if you're looking to make an investment and pour a whole bunch of CapEx into WA, um, yeah, you're just not going to make the return on, on capital. And, um, and, they're, and they're not locking people out. I mean, you tend to find what, where, where are people, you know, some, some of the rationale for building capacity is, if exporters think that they're locked out of a supply chain or they perceive that risk, and I think that probably drove, you know, development of at least one of the terminals on the east coast of Australia. Um, if there's a, you know, if they're starting to lock people out, then you'll start to get people looking and saying, well, okay, we're going to have to develop and build our own pathway if we can't get access to, uh, you know, to that grain. But I, I don't envisage that'll happen. Because that was that was the thing that probably, you know, it, it's quite interesting because from from my point of view. Back in the UK, you would, uh, sorry for relating it back to the UK, but in the UK, we would have a storage site and that would be all of our grain, like mm. one, one buyer's grain. You wouldn't allow somebody else to buy from it. You would, you would happily take it in and then sell it on to somebody else. But yeah. <laughs> Australia is quite unique to an extent in that, uh, well, from my point of view, in that you can have the York site, but you can have AWB, uh, ADM, Bungie, CBH, all competing for the same grain. And the grower doesn't have to think really about which mm. site he sends it to, to an extent. He can send it to that site and know, know that he'll have a bunch of markers. But you, you mentioned something else uh, about about capacity and, and whatnot. And and this this is obviously, we've just come off of, you know, it's been an interesting three years for, for logistics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Quite a roller coaster, right? You know, last year was what fifty-five million ton crop. The year before, twenty-nine. This is nationally, yeah. and thirty-one, fifty-six back in two thousand sixteen. So, so, so when when you think about it, like we, there's there's a certain sort of amount of infrastructure we need, a certain amount of capacity we need, and let's say we've got a thirty-five million ton wheat crop, just for argument's sake. Yeah. But do you really need thirty-five million tons of capacity, or do you need 60 million tons of capacity because we of export capacity because we intend to export all of our grain or the majority traditionally in the first six half six months of the year do we have enough what is our capacity like i guess in what askings do we have the right capacity <laughs> that's a good question oh yes or no it depends on the year and depends when on where the grain is um True. you because know, again it's highly variable i mean it, it's what's in that drawing arc um, and do you have the capacity? I mean, most of the major drawing arcs, you know, from a port perspective, yes, is, is sufficient capacity. The issue becomes one of is there sufficient freight capacity? Um, and, and, that, and that's the big issue. Um, and, you know, and, and, and what decisions do companies make about um, investing to ensure that you've got that freight capability, you know, there for the average year? Um, but what does freight capability look like? In those above average years, I mean, can you, you know, work with rail companies, um, you know, in terms of you know surplus wagons, you know, bringing them back into production, 
um, locos and and um, and in particular drivers. I mean, one of the biggest restrictors is you know the network has a whole bunch of different um, safety requirements for different lines and driver requirements. So you can't sort of you know in a, in a matter of weeks just switch it on and say like hey we've we've got rail capacity etc. Um, you, you've got to go through that whole bringing that capacity on proper notice. You know, it takes about twelve weeks if you want to move you know, rail capacity from one place to another and things like that. So, so there's a sort of a lot of things that, which go into, um, you know, sort of trying to, um, you know, deal with those above average years in the most efficient way possible. You get, the first instinct is to try and get as much rail on as you possibly can. It's the most efficient way of accumulating grain into port, um, you know, but then otherwise, you know, you're relying on, you know, road, um, you know, to try and, uh, you know, save uh you know try and work on um you know executing that program as efficiently as possible i mean you sort of looked at say for example the last drought year on the, on the east coast obviously there's a lot of north south movements and things like that but there's a bunch of road freight capacity that also went over and worked in the western australian market you know had pretty reasonable seasons and things like that so so so, um, so, to, so to go on to and change a bit we just talked a bit about um the big years which Hopefully, will be a, a regular occurrence for for, for <laughs> Australia, and, and and hopefully we're hopefully we're under capacity, yeah, because then that means we're producing large crops. However, let's be let's be realistic. We've had a couple of years, last two years, that the East Coast has gone from a, an exporter to an importer, fruit yeah. effectively or transshipper. Um, how how easy was that to change change the belts around and and get things set up for imports of the scale that we saw in 2018 2019 uh it's, it's relatively easy i mean because a lot of those terminals are also doing import work already around meals and things like that so there's a lot of that equipment um that's already available um that's doing that type of task so from a stevedoring perspective you know bringing you know, handy vessels around the coast and unloading them, um, you know, and, and then just basically trucking that around into, you know, into storages or on bunkers and stuff like that. That That is a process is, is it's, it's, it's essentially just scaling up, um, you know, what you're already doing, um, you know, for other types of import products, you because know, like, you know, fertilisers, meals and, and those sorts of things. So the big challenge is, is when you, is, is the rail movements, um, and again, but once you get those set up in terms of, say, if you're railing out of South Australia, you know, coming up into Moree and unloading and things like that, um, you know, once you've got all the approvals in place to do all that sort of stuff, I mean, it becomes relatively easy. Because one of the things that Matt and I have been talking about for, for a long time is that increasing domestic demand for grains, especially northern New South Wales and Queensland. Like there's just yeah. this rising and rising cattle and feed numbers Matt. Yep. Uh, pigs are, are rising and there's still more licensee approvals on the way for pigs in australia and, chick and chickens chickens potentially more and more sheep feed lots and, and we think that's a good thing because it's a, a way of value adding grain by converting it into animal protein yep. however that's part of the reason why we had to you know, import more grain into the East Coast because that supply and demand balance became that little bit more tight and sketchy. And, yeah. and I think we're seeing that in Canada in, a, in that they're importing um, rapeseed from Ukraine to Canada for August delivery ahead of yeah. coming. Ahead of bizarre, August. isn't it? <laughs> it and, and, and if you look back in years, that would be like importing iron ore into the Pilbara. Yeah. Like, like exactly. it's just unusual. But I think it's going to be a regular occurrence in five, 10 years time. 
because they've gone from 4 million tons of crushed demand to 10 and a half. And they've got another 3 million tons at least of crushed capacity coming online. So that balance between supply and demand is going to be tight if they have a bad year. Yep. On the East Coast, there's a potential for more and more periods where it doesn't even take a particularly bad drought to cause uh, import demand to be increased. Yep. And so we're going to see it as a more regular occurrence. But, but in the likes of transshipping and stuff is, is, is easy to an extent. Yep. But you've also got those international imports, you know, into, I think, Newcastle. Was it Newcastle or Port Kembla? No, nah, it was Port Kembla. Oh, so Manildra. From Manildra, the narrow mill. Yep. Which was, was first from, from Canada. And obviously, do you have any insights into how hard it is to actually import grain from overseas? Oh, it's incredibly hard. I mean, the phytosanitary requirements are, are you know, are very, very strict and for a very good reason. I mean, you know, I think, you know, sort of the, the you know, the protocols that Australia has around, uh, you know, imports, particularly for, you know, diseases that we don't want, you know, carnal bunt and other things mm. um, into the Aussie market are very real. Um, and it's very important that we, you know, we sort of make sure that we, you know, control uh, those as a process. I mean, I'm, the whole issue of imports. I mean, I can remember, you know, 20 years ago with the Alpha guys, you know, talking about, you know, sort of heat treating, um, you know, grain for imports and all those sorts of things for feedlots in southern Queensland. Um, so this is an issue that's been around for been around for quite a long time. Um, I, I think the from an import perspective, uh, you know, again, you, you had, you know, specific, you know, um, you know, supply chain for uh, for Manildra going down in, into the narrow shape which they controlled and managed very, very well. Um, you know, well, you know, in the port on rail uh, down there and, and um, you know, and closing that loop, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's a quite a different story if you're talking about imported grain coming in for, uh, um, you know, whole grains coming in for, you know, and sending it up country. I, I, I just, unless it's heat, heat treated, I mean, I just don't see that happening in a, in, in a hurry. I'm... Um... It feels a bit like talkback radio this session because while we've been talking all about infrastructure and grain and and, and ports and everything else, um, I got a tweet from Todd Matthews just around an article Andrew wrote just recently about, I think it was entitled Many Ports in a Storm. And we've actually yeah. had both positive and negative feedback on that particular article. It, um, some liked it and some were a bit annoyed by it, but I looked at some of the feedback we got. And yeah. so I'm gonna lob I'm gonna lob a bomb in here and then run away because I'm mainly livestock guy, so I can just do this. I'm not sure. Um, Nigel, did you get a chance to read that article? And do you reckon um, was Andrew on the ball or was he uh, a little bit misguided? Was he misguided? You know, I think you know in any industry, it's a good good to um, you know challenge people in terms of their thinking around you know what's possible in a market. Um, you know, I think out of out of that debate you know comes you know the ability for people to sort of think about supply chains differently and, and try and create different solutions you know because again the markets are changing we're just on that topic around you know so sort of the east coast domestic you know flows of grain and things like that i mean that's you know that's very real and, and that's going to drive you know over the next sort of 10 15 years different behaviors around um you know how the supply chain is going to going to work but it also drives different behaviors in terms of what growers are doing as well and you'll see in queensland where you know traditionally i mean they've been targeting, you know, prime hard, you know, wheat production for markets, you know, overseas, it's really been, been you know, and that's, you know, Australia's built a very big reputation on that. But you can see the work that the Rebel Seeds guys have done with Borlog, you know, wheat, and, and what they're doing is saying, well, hang on, we're more of a domestic feed market here now. I'd rather try and improve my yield 
I might, I might be growing an ASW or APW, you know, type wheat, um, but my yield uh, and my ability to get a greater yield is going to earn me a greater gross margin. So they're pursuing yield versus quality to supply into that domestic market. And I think you're going to continue to sort of see those types of changes, you know, happening in, in the Australian market. I think there's some red wheat being grown down in, in um, you know, southern Victoria. Again, it's yeah. that type of country, high rainfall countries, probably well suited to red wheat. I mean, white wheat growers don't really like to hear people talk about red wheat. But, you know, again, if, you know, these supply chains can be, you know, operated on the basis. You can, you can segregate and maintain the integrity, you know, of, of um, you know, the sort of those competing uh, all those cross-contamination risks. You know, you're going to see, you're going to see more of that. Well, that's actually an interesting one. Just uh, I did a presentation last night to the the Kiev and Black Sea Trend and Hedge Club, uh, which yep. confused people that they were hearing about the Australian market from a Scotsman. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I had a, a number of questions. The, the first two. The first one was. Uh, at the start of the presentation was, is it true that you have to check your shoes for spiders? Um, the second, the second <laughs> question, <absolutely> true. <laughs> uh, the second question, which was probably more pertinent was actually about GM canola um, and, and about segregation and, and, and whether our segregation is, is up to the, up to scratch. What, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that it is up to scratch because we haven't seen any issues, but do you have any sort of insight in, into that? Yeah, yeah, pretty deep insights. So I was with GrainCorp um, you know, when they basically started the you know, that segregation process with GM canola um, and all the protocols associated with that, you know, sort of the testing on intake. You know, I mean, they, you know, every sample they keep a you know a bag of that you know truckload, etc., and all that sort of stuff, and all gets you know sent off for testing. So you know that 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 regime or that that process is is really you know been through the you know a decade, you know of um, uh, you know, seeing whether it performs or not, and to date, you know, it actually seems to have performed pretty well. So um, it can be done. I mean, again, it's like anything; it's you've just got to maintain those those disciplines, um, you know, around how you're controlling the supply chain and, and managing, you know, those HACCP type risks, yep. you know, along that supply chain. And I think, you know, in, in Matt's case, in the in in the meat sector, I mean, you've got issues around you know cross contamination between different types of meal, meat meals, and soy meals, and stuff like mm. that. So you know, when a truck turns up to be loaded, you know, at a um, you know a meal facility, I mean, the inspection regimes go into that. What was your last prior load, and all those sorts of things. I mean, the Australian market's sort of got that pretty right. I mean, it, you haven't heard of too many sort of situations where you've had you know sort of disasters, you know, around you know cross contamination. I mean, there have you know there have been circumstances where it has happened, but, but generally speaking, you've you've got you know most Aussie companies have got pretty tight um, you know processes in place in terms of how they manage that 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 is a risk and, and look and there has been contaminations of of gm and non-gm yep. at site but it's never actually made it out to the customer as far as yeah. i'm aware which is, is, yeah. is, is what you want yep. to avoid you know that's yeah yeah exactly and, 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 yeah, the fact, exactly. and, the, and the fact that you know about those is probably a good thing because it means yep. it hasn't slipped through the keeper no exactly so, and part of that's a real credit to say GTA, Grain Trade Australia. I mean, in, in the standards that they, you know, that they have built in the Australian industry, and, and those standards cut across to the feed industry as well, um, in terms of sort of the sampling procedures and all those sorts of things. So I think collectively as an industry, both you know, grain and livestock markets, of, and the overall Australian market around that 
food standards and food quality, you know, we've tended to, you know, we've tended to sort of do that, do that quite well. And I think it's like, that's, that's one of the things we're talking to the guys yesterday uh, who are all black sea grain traders effectively is, yeah. is, you know, is reiterating, you know, our place that we are, you know, clean and green and, and we do have yeah. the infrastructure. And that was a yeah. lot of the surprises when you talk to people in that sector of the world is, you know, the fact that we don't have 24 hour truck queues, you know, we have, we, <laughs> the, we, we, every year you'll see the, you'll see the sort of the, the video on, on Twitter in, in Australia of, of somebody who has to sit there for a whole one hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas you sort of look at, at Brazil, Russia, and, you know, Brazil, probably, mm. especially you've had the guy who sat in his truck for five days. You know, yeah. yeah. So, so I think I it's guess... a different world when you're talking about Brazil. I mean, because it's it's quite a you know in in Australia one of the things we do on the east coast you've got truck time slotting and all those sorts of things and you got fatigue management, managing hours and stuff like that. So the Australian markets had to evolve with change of responsibility legislation. In in Brazil, you know, being in the wilds of Brazil, you know, north and south, I mean, it is just you know staggering the you know, the distances that these trucks are going. You know, it's 1,400, 1,400k you know, with one load. You know, get down to port, um, and then you know if you've got port congestion issues, you know vessels waiting and stuff. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a different world, but um, yeah, but again, you know, sort of you know, there's been a lot of work done in in uh, you know in those those markets because they don't have you know got some rail infrastructure, um, but you know it's not it's not what you call world class. I and mean, but those countries are, are really getting there in terms of making those investments. Um, you know, say northern Brazil, you know, looking at. Um, yeah, barging down the you know, sort of the Power River, you know, some of those northern terminals and stuff like that. That was part of what you know, so the ADM and Glencore team are doing. So, you know, that evolution is taking place, you know, it take, takes a while, but so, they're bringing, I guess, what they do in the US to you know, some of those markets to make them more efficient. So, so Nigel, we're, we're about to run out of time. So what, what I was going to leave you with was just one, I'll give you very short, one, 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 one word answers <laughs> out, out of five. How is Australian capacity for exporting? Five, how many stars out of five stars? Uh, exporting capacity? Yep. Uh, I'd give it a four out of five. Uh, safety? Safety and phytosanitary? Oh, five out of five, yeah. Cost compared to the rest of the world? Uh, a range from three to three to four. Very, very political. Uh, <laughs> uh, An upcountry... Infrastructure. Uh, oh, I mean, it's it's an easy. It's it's what, between one, four what, and five. Four and five. I was going to say I was yeah. going to have to stop you there. So we're actually literally going to run out of time. So thanks, Nigel, for coming along. It's it's been been good to have you. It's good to get your insights because it's good to actually listen to to, to a professional for once. And uh, oh, thanks, thanks, Andrew. Are you, you going to try and stop me doing the the croc jokes? I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> no, nah, no. Nah, well, well, I, I know that I am. Uh, I have been vindicated. We apologise, but at the end of that podcast, we got cut off. Uh, so, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends and family. Remember, sharing is caring, and we'll catch you all soon. Bye, bye. <laughs>